Okay. So the term ballistician gets tossed around in the, in the shooting community and online and in podcasts, and it's often kind of a revered position. What, what got you in, in to this career field? Um, I grew up <clears throat> on a farm and ranch, uh, as, as a lot of kids do in, in America. Um, was handed a, a rifle to keep the coyotes at bay and keep the prairie dogs from digging holes in the fields and wasting water. Um, and my first, my first rifle was a 22 Magnum, um, where most kids get like a 22 long rifle. So the cost of ammunition for me was substantially higher than it probably was for, you know, most folks that got a 22 long rifle. So, uh, by nature of the cost of that ammo, it forced me to be more selective. I didn't just get to, you know, go blast 500 rounds for $8 and not really care what happened. Um, <clears throat> and I started to observe kind of basic ballistic phenomena you know, bullets dropping the further, you know, the further the distance to the target, the more low I hit and wind seemed to affect things. And uh, observing those early things just sparked a fire in me and a really, really long story short, um, that fire is still burning today. And I'm lucky enough to have a career field where I get to live in that every day. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to understand that fire every day. Man, that's awesome. It sounds, I mean, it really does kind of sound like a dream job. It is. And, and if you would have asked me back in those early years when I was young, you know, kind of that fire had first started, if you would have asked me, you know, could you envision yourself doing this as a career? I would have looked at you sideways. I didn't even know it was possible, you know? So, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of right turns and a lot of right people in my life led me to where I am today. So yeah, it's, it's a, I'm super fortunate and uh, super grateful to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and at an amazing, amazing company with lots of facilities. So I, I, I just, while you were talking, we're going to kind of roll with my scatterbrain here, but I imagine Hornady laboratories, like some kind of crazy Batman thing. What, what kind of <laughs> devices do you guys have at your disposal that you're like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I work in, <clears throat> I work in the, the main ballistics lab. So that ballistics lab does all of the, uh, pressure and velocity testing for the ammunition production portion of our, our business. Um, so obviously we have to make sure things are meeting a specification and they're, just, they're safe, you know, and all those things. So uh, that's the lab I work in. So um, 10 steps from my desk, I can conduct pressure, velocity, and accuracy testing simultaneously. A um, uh, couple steps the other direction, I have a cabinet full of propellants um, that are that span the commercial line you're used to seeing on a shelf as well as many things that are unavailable on the commercial market um, and then not too many steps away from that I have a access to a, a 300 meter outdoor range where we do short range Doppler radar testing dispersion testing terminal performance testing um, and then we also have some other facilities that allow us to do the long range, uh, Doppler radar testing or dispersion or any of that kind of stuff. So I essentially work in a room that, uh, allows me to, to look at very unique, uh, contributing factors to what's going on when you pull the trigger. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Yeah. We're going to be able to talk for about 10 hours <laughs> about just that. Um, but some of that I'm going to get back to, um, the laboratory stuff will play a role in some of these answers. Yeah. The kid stuff, I love that because I feel like I'm still at that level of, wow, the bullet, I have to hold higher to hit it. Um, I'm going to ask you a question just about that observation and now how far you've come and how your understanding has stayed. Obviously, the drop wind stuff mm -hmm. is, is deeper, but I've noticed a trend. I shoot a lot with Frank Galley and he kind of clued me into it. Um, and this is a trend that we see across calibers with different people. But let's, let's say for example, you know, we take rifles of, of different calibers and we compare whatever the drop's going to be at a thousand yards to 900 yards. Mm -hmm. They have different bullet weights, they have different speeds, but the percentage of change of their particular elevations, the percentages across rifles is very similar mm -hmm. if you bring it in 100 yards. Is that something that, that you've noticed also? Um, not, not that specifically, um, but if I 
I would have noticed that if I if I had a specific reason to go look there. Um, but a lot of a lot of my pursuits are in problem solving or increasing a performance. Yeah. And so unless you had a, you know, maybe a a dramatic difference amongst cartridges that existed there, that probably would have garnered my attention and, and would have had me dive into that. Um, but the fact that you see similarities there isn't necessarily problematic, you know? Um, oh, no, it's not a problem. I think that what we've used in, in the terms, because they were, his friend Mark called it one thing and then he called it something else, and the way I understand it is different. Um, they initially called it weaponized math for, for quick dope for their classes, and then uh, Frank wanted to call it gravity ballistics. And, um, you know, I, I think of it as, as like a bullet math problem, but if you have 20 or 30 people all with their Kestrels and, and magneto speeds, it can take an awful lot of time. But if, if we say, oh, you hit this, add this percentage to your dope for the next 100-yard line, and you don't know anything about their rifle, it tends to get them close to a waterline where you can kind of fine-tune it before you go to, to a Kestrel. Uh, so we get hard data first. And mm -hmm. we just notice that the percent change when we're doing those calculations is similar. So you can get people dope very quickly to get on a plate and then fine-tune it rather than mm -hmm. chronograph everybody and then look to see what what's wrong with the inputs on their Kestrel right there. Yeah. Um, and, and so that percentage is just fascinating, and, and it's something that, um, you know, the math lines up, but the crossover explaining it um, is something that, you know, I thought might be worth uh, mentioning to you. But it's just a, it's a quick way for you to say, okay, if you're going to go 200 yards past where you have a known hit with good elevation, mm -hmm. um, you know, multiply your drop or your, you, you know, the, whatever you have on your turret by this um, – by this amount and, mm -hmm. and it's going to be pretty close, like you know, within a 10th and that, sure. that carries true pretty well to, um, to a thousand yards. And, uh, you know, I think it's fascinating because it works. It doesn't make sense if you just think of BC bullet weight and all these different speeds, but the percentages seem to line up regardless. And yeah, uh, I bet, I bet if you looked at them from a time standpoint, it would, mm -hmm it might clear it up some because um, that's another, I think, paradigm that a lot of us get stuck in is we operate in range, right, is the units that we're used to operating in. We have to know that to be able to hit the target. We think that way um, when we look at something visually, um, but it's not a matter of range. It's a matter of time, um, but time is harder to visualize and conceptualize and stuff like that. And I'd be curious if you took those examples you listed and, and went back and looked at the, the time of flights of those, how, if, if that percentage of similarity would even become more similar. Yeah. What's strange, at least my interpretation of what you just said is right. Obviously the bigger bullets are going to be going slower in general and the smaller bullets are going to be going faster. The thing is from 900 yards to a thousand yards, the percent of elevation change Mm-hmm is consistent, right? Like, you know, it's not a mill more across, but, but it's a, you know, if, 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 if somebody was holding 10 mils and somebody was holding nine mils, the 10 mil is going to have a bigger, bigger change in numbers because that percentage is, it's a fixed it percentage, nine, but the fixed percentage lines up. So it's really easy to say, okay, great. You know, whatever you, whatever you dialed, bring it back this much. Yep, And this much is going to be different for each shooter, but it's easy to just grab your iPhone and say, okay, if you hit there, dial this for the next one. Sure. Yeah. And they're not, they're not, uh, oh my gosh, something's wrong with my Kestrel. Like, well, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, ultimately the Kestrel gives you good data, but you got to make sure that the data that's in it is good to begin with. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I do think it's a, a, one of those practical things where you notice, oh, I had to hold this much and I need to hold more. How much more? Right. Here's a trend. Here's a trend that works. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mentioned before we started uh, recording that that you know the saying "details matter" obviously is is true, right? And details and and the garbage in, garbage out concept. It, I, I sometimes I see it being taken a little bit far, and mm -hmm. what I mean by far is uh, the context of the application. Um, are there any kind of 
being a detailed person that actually has more data than any most you know 99.9% of shooters out there about the effects of very 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 small detail are there any kind of major themes you hear about through shooting that that um maybe are taken a little bit too far in a practical context yeah um <clears throat> i think environmental concerns your temperature uh your pressure would be probably your main two of those right those are the ones that that have the biggest impact on your external ballistics result. Um, but a lot of times you get guys really wrapped up or worried about, you know, a small change in temperature or, you know, uh, temperature more common, right? Cause that happens without throughout the day, whereas pressure is usually fairly static. I mean, you, you might see a swing throughout the day, but not a whole lot. Um, and in context of how far they're shooting, you know, um, if you, you take any catalog of any ammunition producer out there, us or anybody else, and usually there's a ballistics table, right. Where they have kind of all of the cartridges they produce and say they're all zeroed at 100 yards. And you can see the trajectory out to maybe 500. You can just go to that 500 yard, you know, box and run your way down from, you know, like in our catalog from 17 all the way up to 50 BMG. And the trajectories aren't that much different out to 500. And I think a lot of guys will lose context where, like you said, you know, let's say, let's say you are trying to shoot a prairie dog at 1500 yards. You should probably have your temperature nailed pretty accurately. But if you're trying to shoot a coyote at 300, you probably don't need to worry about it nearly as much. But I think we get focused on, well, it matters on that prairie dog. So it always matters that much everywhere. And we don't think about, where and when it matters, then we get kind of wrapped up in that. I, I do observe that. Yeah. I'm obsessed with where and when, because that tends to be the, one of the primary questions I ask if a shooter wants to do anything like mm -hmm. where, when, what are you doing it for? And what are you using? Cause the answer really depends exclusively on that. So, all right, we've been breaking things down here into like zones of close, middle, far. Mm -hmm. And this 500 yard temperature variant is kind of in that, you know, one to 500 yards. Um, I usually, I've got a gray zone there at 300, but, um, but there's another reason for that we'll get to, but let's say that that is close mm -hmm. and people would, might argue that 500 yards isn't necessarily close, but temperature doesn't matter as much from hundred to 500. Um, well, and then there's a middle where it's going to matter a little, but where does it, where do you think it really has to be accounted for in terms of um, distance? And I know that that kind of depends on the caliber you're shooting, but can you break down kind of close, middle, far zones sure. for, for yeah, some I of mean, these environmental characteristics? Absolutely. For, for the guys that, that want a little bit more of an accurate answer, I would shift the, the frame from, from distance to time um, because all ballistics is based on time. Um, that half-second time of flight is kind of the, the line in the sand where you see things really starting to matter. And what do I mean by things starting to matter? In that if you don't account for them, you will be able to observe them outside of your natural level of dispersion. So when you, when you shoot a group, right, not all, every bullet goes in the same hole. There's a patterning of your shots. And as you increase distance or time, that patterning gets a little bit larger. It's generally linear plus a little bit. Um, so if we have a gun that shoots an inch at 100 and we extrapolate that out, that's, a uh, say, a 5-inch, 6-inch uh, grouping gun at 500. What I mean by they start to become important, a given variable, is that we can now observe its effect outside of that five-inch pattern that gun is producing, if that makes sense. So a half-second time of flight is really that line. Now, since most of us don't think about things in time, we think about it in distance, that, that's around 500, so let's say four to 600 yards for most of your cartridges that are going to be applicable for shooting beyond that. Because you can make the argument, well, with a 300 blackout subsonic, that's not the case. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, that's an extreme case. Um, but, but for the cartridges, you know, essentially intended to or, or capable of doing that across a, a wide span of, you know, firearms platforms or shooter skill, right? Like the, the firearm has a robust, uh, the firearm and, and, and um, cartridge combination have a robust ability to perform at those distances. I would, I would draw that around 
say 500. So outside of 500, beyond that, you need to start paying attention and the amount you need to pay attention grows as a function of that distance growing. Awesome. That's an awesome answer. And where is it? Is there a zone? So you got half second is where you start to see effects that's going to affect um, beyond natural dispersion. Mm -hmm. Is there a point where you've passed uh, a practical use for, for that? Um, I guess what I mean is like you can, you know, if, if, if we take a lot of ammo in a 22 rimfire, you know, we're, we could hit a thousand yards. Sure. If we shoot enough. Just, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, so I, I consider that luck. I would agree. So where does, where do you just, where have you basically just left everything behind but luck? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think you have to start to tie hit probability into this. Um, so let's just say, you know, let's pick a, pick a discipline or, or an application, um, coyote hunting just for something simple, right? For it, we need a target size to start to generate a, a hit probability idea. So let's say we draw our line at, uh, are you getting that interference on your end? Chris? No. Hold on one sec. Um, okay. Let me think where I left off here. Uh, target size, hit probability and target size with, uh, with relation to time of flight. Yeah, that's right. So, so to start to bring in the hit probability piece, um, you have to have a target size. So if we say like a coyote, maybe let's draw our line, our hit probability line in the sand at 50%. So things would get ridiculous at the point where we're not hitting at 50%, right? We're only hitting the target 10% of the time or something. That's, that's generally going to be associated with time of flights of probably somewhere between one and a half and two seconds obviously depending on your target size but you know for most of the targets we're shooting say in a long range competition or or you know hunting i don't i don't think anybody's going to go out and pursue you know a game animal a deer or an antelope or an elk or something at those sorts of time of flights that's that's a bit ridiculous i mean but you might take a shot at a coyote at you know 1200 or 1400 or 1600 right so so that's, a, that's what I mean by you have to start to bring hit probability in to start to answer the, the ridiculousness question. When is this just playing the lottery of, of the statistical noise of your rifle, ammo, and shooter combination? Right. right. Yeah, but I do think that, that you know, it's a fun thing to, to you know, just wrap, wrap brains around um, the idea of, you know, I, I intend on hitting it, with few rounds or one versus, you know, I'm going to shoot 500 rounds and, um, right. And so and another, what that actually means. There's another cool example. I, I think of it as kind of a cool example. Um, we have all these different like competitive disciplines, right? You have like mm -hmm. the PRS, you have NRL, uh, when it was, when it was still running. And then obviously you have NRL Hunter and then you have kind of these ELR style matches, right? Um, whether they're, you know, kind of the smaller matches that are throughout the country, or you have the kind of the big notorious ones like the king of one mile or king of two mile, that kind of stuff. Something interesting that we've observed is running the calculations on those ELR matches, you're definitely starting to play in the statistical noise because generally they only allow you to shoot a couple shots at a given distance, right? Well, what you see in the other disciplines, let's say that are mainly 1,500 yards and in, so PRS, NRL, Hunter, all that kind of stuff, what you see happen there is the is the guys that perform well at those matches consistently perform well. Meaning, go look at who are the top five shooters at you know any of the PRS matches or the NRL Hunter matches, and you're going to see a lot of the same names repeated in those top five or ten spots. So what that's an indication of is that their performance and skill level is consistent because it happens across different matches and environments. When you look at that ELR. Um, discipline, you see the complete opposite. You see that it's almost never a repeat winner. And in many cases, the guy that won it the year before may not even be in the top 50% the following year. And that's an indication that the level of skill or capability of the shooter firearm ammunition combination is not repeatable across environments, even though the requirement of the shooting discipline hasn't changed very much. And so that's that, that would be another way to look at when when are we starting to get into you know, I'm not going to call it ridiculous territory because you 
you should push the limits. You know, you're never going to grow or or uh, discover new things if you just live in the in the land of repeatable comfort. Um, but th there there is an element there where I'm sure you know a, a guy not knowing any better goes to one of those say ELR style matches and doesn't perform very very well or up to his expectations and he's he's trying to figure out what's wrong is it him is it his gear is it, you know what what's the what's the long pole in the tent here and it may just be that you're competing in a discipline where if you redid that competition 10 different times you get 10 different results whereas if he goes to one of the matches where the targets are a little bit closer he gets repeatable performance out of that right yeah that that makes sense that's a good point that's interesting i i haven't done any of those long ones although the um, Accuracy International team went to you guys uh, to do some testing before the one in Wyoming a few months ago, and then they yep. came out to the range here, uh, the and and did their confirmation stuff here. So I got to see the ammo that that you guys gave them, and then they test it here, and so uh, you know I let them in and, and hung out while they did their stuff, and I got to see the performance of. You know, really good ammo and really good rifles at pretty far distances, which but mm -hmm. it was about fifteen hundred yards, and and um, yeah, it was cool to cool to see. I want to I want to get a system set up for that. Okay, so yes. but let's get back on to these uh, detailed things. So we got temperature. Now I'm gonna I've got a couple of things that um, I already realized we're not going to get to most of it. I've got some um, some random questions for you, uh, and. We'll just see how it goes. Okay. So just, you know, in layman's terms, because here in the mountains, a lot of times, uh, you know, people are used to a flat range. They're used to consistent wind stuff. And, and, and I hear a lot of explanations on why somebody's dope isn't lining up for a target. And one of the very common ones is aerodynamic jump. Like, oh, well, these mountain winds, you know, that you can't tell, but it's strong. And I'm getting three-tenths jump or it's dropping three-tenths. So you know, before, I mean, sometimes I have hunches about why it could be something else, but, but let's entertain aerodynamic jump for a minute. Um, okay. Can you explain just briefly how it works and, and when it works? Um, like, okay. does it, does it start right at the muzzle? Does it keep going up? Does it, how, how does a bullet's flight get affected in the vertical component from a crosswind? Yeah. Great question. Um, so trying to, to explain it verbally, um, we'll, we'll see how it com comes across, right? Kind of a, a rather advanced aerodynamic um, thing to explain. But we're going to use a child's top as the example. So a child's top is something we can visualize. It's a gyroscopically stabilized ob object, much like our bullet is. Um, I, I understand that, obviously, you know, it's contacting like a tabletop or something as it spins, right? And our, our projectile is not doing that. But there's a lot of similarities between the, the spinning objects, regardless of those, those two differences. So if you take a child's top and you spin it in front of you on the table and you, you blow on it with your breath uh, and you, you blow it away from you, you'll see that that child's top moves away from you because it's fairly lightweight, has a pretty good amount of surface area, and, and the force of your breath will cause it to move away from you. But the other thing that you'll see is it will move 90 degrees from that direction it moved away from you. And it will move uh, 90 degrees upstream of its direction of rotation. So what I mean by that is if we think of uh, most of our barrels are right-hand twist, I would say that's, that's fairly universal. Definitely left twist barrels out there, but from a right-hand twist barrel, what that means is if we think of a, a straight crosswind, let's say from, from the back uh, of the bullet or the shooter's perspective, that's a right-to-left crosswind that's going to be hitting the bullet at the, let's call it the 3 o'clock area of the bullet. If we think about a clock orientation looking at the base of the bullet, it's going to hit at 3 o'clock. So what that means is that the gyroscope is going to respond 90 degrees upstream of the direction of rotation. So 90 degrees upstream of the direction of rotation would be the 12 o'clock from 3 to 12. What you see happen is the bullet's nose orientation uh, is going to spend more time above the trajectory that it's on or its velocity vector than it will below. And that causes the vertical jump that you see. You see the same thing when the wind is applied left to right. 90 degrees upstream would be down at 6 o'clock. 
In that case, the bullet's nose will spend more time below its trajectory than it spends above it. Because the bullet is never flying with its nose perfectly aligned with the trajectory. It's always kind of wobbling around the trajectory a little bit. It's called precession and mutation. And you see that with the child's top, right? When you spin it and it's got a very stable stability axis and it's spinning nice and clean, it's, the nose of that top is still kind of just wobbling around just a little bit on the surface of the table. Have, have you observed that? Yeah. Yeah, so in, in very layman's terms and just trying to describe it verbally, um, that's how aerodynamic jump works. Now, your question, your second question was, is it just at the muzzle? Is it all the way downrange? It's anywhere that there's a force being applied to the bullet. So absolutely, as soon as it comes out of the muzzle, if there's a crosswind present, it's there. If there's nothing for 500 yards, but there's some of it at 500 yards, you'll see it there as well. The magnitude of it will change, however. So... I was thinking of a scenario where um, it came up where there was a, you know, it was in a sheltered place and then there was a lane with strong wind and then it went back to sheltered Uh huh. and there was a strong wind. And in that moment that the bullets affected by that strong wind, is it going to jump according to that velocity, a certain amount? Mm hmm. Yeah, so what happens is, is the stronger the wind speed is, the higher or lower the nose orientation will be. Mm-hmm. So if it's a, so across a any, any sort of wind present really, really wakes a bullet's nose pattern up. So in a no wind situation, the pattern that the nose is tracing, that little bit of wobble that the bullet has is, is imperceptibly small. You're talking about probably hundreds or thousands of a degree very small numbers. When you start to apply crosswinds, it wakes up dramatically. You go from, you know, hundreds or thousands of a degree of, of wobble that it has. Uh, so that, when I say degree, I mean angle, right? The angle that it's sitting at relative to the vector it's, it's flying at its trajectory. You, you apply some crosswind and that thing will wake up to, a five mile an hour crosswind might wake up the nose pattern to a couple tenths of a degree. So it, it really causes it to open up. So when you hit it with varying wind speeds, you're, you're changing the nose, the, the location of the bullet's nose in regard to the path that it's traveling on. So it's traveling on a path, and it hits a 20-mile-an-hour wind. Mm-hmm. When the 20-mile-an-hour wind goes away, does it stay in that position, or does it go back to the it direction? Will, it will go back if it's dynamically stable. And most of our long-range applicable bullets today are dynamically stable. So, yeah, dynamic stability is defined as any angle of attack that the bullet has is staying the same or getting smaller. Uh, If it's dynamically unstable, that means it has an increasing level of angle of attack. Gotcha. So then just leading to see what if if this makes sense. If I was in a building, let's say the building was very huge. Mm Mm-hmm. And then shooting across a street with a crosswind mm-hmm. into another building that was really long and it was exposed yes. to one pulse of wind. Yeah. Let's say it was 10 miles an hour. Uh huh. Versus, uh, let's say it was a thousand yards and uh, um, there's one lane in the middle where it's exposed to a 20 mile an hour wind. Yep. For, for a moment. Versus shooting down, like, um, I'm imagining like, a New York City street where every hundred yards there's an intersection, and in that intersection there's a, 20, a ten mile an hour crosswind, but it gets exposed ten times. Uh huh. Would the elevation be different between those two scenarios? Yes, I would expect them to be absolutely, because of the amount of time in that New York example, it's spent more time in a crosswind than just that small little sliver it had going building to building and only gotcha so it'd be one tenth versus ten tenths or whatever whatever the time time exposure is right okay gotcha um then so we got the crosswind kind of concept there um what about extreme winds like i mean i'm noticing in a thousand yards in most practical kind of calibers you know, I'm, I'm looking at like two to three tenths of a shift in decent winds, 15 miles an hour or something like that, 10, 12 to 15 miles an hour. 
um, which, you know, is about an MOA ish, you know, a little less than an MOA mm-hmm. very variation. So depending on what you're shooting, it could matter. You'd want to account for it, but is there a way to kind of take that and make a curve like hit probability where the wind is so strong that, um, you, you kind of lose it. Like if we were in an airplane shooting from one airplane to the other, where are we going to miss by massive quantities? Right. Uh, so, I mean, it, it depends on a whole bunch of, of unique things. Uh, depends on the environment the bullet's traveling through. It depends on its shape, its mass layout. Uh, it depends on the gyroscopic stability of the bullet it depends on it. Like there's a whole bunch of details that, that dictate how this happens or, or how, why, how much of it happens. Now, most long range bullets that we're familiar with shooting though, are probably going to have aerodynamic jump values for a full, for a full 90 degree crosswind of somewhere around, I would say they average between six and nine tenths of a mil per 10 miles an hour of crosswind. And that's that's additive. So if that crosswind doubles, that aerodynamic jump doubles. Um, again, that's for straight crosswind values. So you know, based on that, could you then figure, okay, well, knowing that, let's say your threshold for you know missing too much due to it is you know four tenths of a mile an hour of wind. Well, that's probably going to be 40, 50, 60 miles an hour of wind that would cause that of straight crosswind. And constant. But, but a lot of that, that's a, a, a twist ratio thing. If you lowered the twist rate, would it have less of a jump? Not a meaningful amount. Not y- 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 Because at the bottom of the twist rate lowering ladder is, is your gyroscopic stability threshold. Most bullets that we're shooting in long-range shooting are, are running with a gyroscopic stability somewhere between 1.5 and maybe 2, maybe a touch, a touch over an SG of 2. So you, you really couldn't effectively lower the twist rate without hitting the wall of gyroscopic stability first. Gotcha. Now I've got, um, I like to climb, and, and there's all sorts of crazy grip things for climbing, but like a, one of the rehab things is a gyroscopic ball that people spin and then they do this and it makes your hand and wrist tired. Yeah. Um, yeah. What if you built a bullet with, uh, uh, with bearings on the inside and some kind of heavy core so that the inside spun and the outside didn't, would that influence anything? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we call in the ballistics world, moving parts uh, mm-hmm. and move, moving parts are generally a really bad thing. Um, so I think what you're asking is like, could you, could you time the, 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 the spin decay or the, the, the rate at which it loses its spin rate, um, Mm -hmm. to the velocity that it's traveling at. So that what you would be able to do there is maintain a, maybe a constant gyroscopic stability factor, um, because a bullet in flight, an actual bullet is is has an ever increasing gyroscopic stability. It's it's most gyroscopically unstable when it comes out of the muzzle, and then as it continues downrange and velocity is being lost, it actually increases in its gyroscopic stability. So, what something like that would do, if you could time it properly without having um, you know unassociated gremlins creep up, maybe that likely would, uh, probably in the form of dispersion. Um, the best you could achieve with something like that would be a, a static uh, gyroscopic stability number uh, across Mach numbers. That's not going to gain you a, a ton. I mean, that would that would gain you a little bit less spin drift, um, but aerodynamic jump-wise, it's still going to be present. There, there's there's not a good way to to fully get rid of that unless you have um, unless you have thrust, right? So like a rocket, where a a, a rocket uh, that has enough thrust to counter the amount of drag it has will have no wind deflection and no aerodynamic jump. Well, a rocket really doesn't have aerodynamic jump anyway because it's fin stabilized, not spin stabilized. But um, I guess what I'm saying is it would be a tough nut to crack by uh, your example, but it's fun to think about for sure. Like that's a great idea. It's a good question. Um, Golf balls are dimpled. Yeah. And I'm not a golfer. But apparently, it has something to do with how it flies through the air. Have Have you guys experimented with dimpled surface bullets? 
No, uh, only, well, because golf balls are flying subsonic. That's why those dimples have a benefit is there's no supersonic flow for a golf ball. Um, if you took a golf ball and made a, a cool enough golf ball cannon that you could launch them supersonically, uh, those dimples wouldn't have much of an effect anymore. We, so that's funny that you, you say that we, we get that request like every year or two, you know, somebody will write in or, or we see somebody at a trade show or something and they'll say, man, why haven't you guys thought about putting dimples on a bullet? Like it makes golf balls so much better. And, and that's the reason why is because, you know, most of the bullets uh, are flying in supersonic uh, flight, not, not subsonic. Gotcha. So you guys have the A-tips and, and um, you know, there's different reasons why people really like those, but the tips on bullets make a difference. Um, is that because of how the supersonic, whatever the wave is off the front of it is influencing the shell around the bullet. Maybe you have better terms to describe the barrier that's created between the bullet moving through stuff, trying to get out of the way. Um, yeah. Is, is the tip shape of that, you know, people point bullets, but mm -hmm. yet you look at some that aren't pointed and then you got the ones with the plastic tips and the aluminum tips and, and how much does, the front surface affect how that shell or barrier zone is created or does it not matter as much? Well, so that it's, it's pretty well established, you know, in kind of the public realm or whatever, but um, a, a lot of this information came out of like the government research labs, you know, in the 1950s through eighties. Um, but the, the, it's called the meat plat or the point of that bullet is is very critical to the supersonic drag that you get and and mainly the size of the me plat so the bigger that me plat becomes the higher the drag becomes now there's other things playing in right the ogive length is is very uh, influential at, at supersonic flight um the boat tail not quite as much there's some there's some meat on the bone for supersonic boat tails really kick in at, at trans and subsonic um, but yeah, the size of that, the size of that meat plat is absolutely critical. And that's why you've seen guys for a long time playing with that, right? You don't really see, you know, boat tail modification tooling in the reloading or hand loading, you know, space or, you know, ogive stretchers or anything like that, right? You, you see the, this, this tooling that's available to the, to the hobbyist or the recreational shooter or competitive shooter that, that is modifying that meat plat or that point of the bullet. And the reason is because you can, you can change things quite a bit by the size of that. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's pretty interesting. So, so you mentioned the ogive. Um, I have heard people weight sorting bullets. They'll, they'll order a lot and they'll say, oh my gosh, this one is a hundredth more than this or, or whatever the weight variability is. But you guys test a lot of bullets. So I'm curious between, you know, if I order, you know, a thousand A-tips, mm -hmm. that's nothing. You guys sort through hundreds of thousands of them and shoot them across Dopplers. What's the real like take home practical, like the difference. You, I'm sure you guys have tolerances on weights that mm -hmm. are acceptable. Yeah. And within that acceptable range, what kind of real world effects are you seeing with weight? Um, the bullet length, if I take one lot to the next, the length will be different from tip to base. Right versus the ogive to base length. Um, you know, if people are weight sorting bullets or they measure the length and they're length sorting bullets, how much of an improvement is that gonna have on performance versus um, making sure that the ogive, and I haven't measured the ogive to base, but I have measured weight and I have measured length just to see if there is variability. I like, sure. I like um, factory ammo. Uh, and I don't shoot F class or bench rest, so I haven't gone bananas over this. But but what from your testing with very high volumes, how much of an effect does weight overall bullet length variability within a within a, a bullet? You know, let's say it's a seventy seven grain or a seventy five grain or whatever two two three or a one oh five yep. six mil or you know, 146.5 or something like that in terms of like actual flight characteristics. Right. 
So, so weight variance within the tolerance that, that is specified, right? Because in all of manufacturing, you have a tolerance, right? A, a minimum and a max allowed, uh, and then a nominal or an average target. Um, you're, you're not going to see much impact from weight. And, and what I mean by that is, does weight matter? Yes, absolutely. You can't deny that fact. But let's say that one bullet is um, 74.5 grains and the other one is 75.5, just to give it some numbers, right? A one grain difference between those two bullets. At what point, external ballistically, will that become meaningful? Only at those ranges or time of flights that we talked about earlier, where your hit probabilities are so low. There's so many other contributing factors that are worth more that although it's present, it's not the, it's not the primary source of the dispersion that you're seeing. So, so within modern manufacturing, I mean, bullet weight minus, you know, outside of maybe like some, you know, you go buy like some budget 55 grain FMJ, you know, like really cheap ball bullets you know, maybe there's more variance in those. But if it's like a match quality projectile, regardless of the manufacturer, the weight variation is, is almost inconsequential. And, and to give you another extreme example of that, I've taken random samplings uh, in, in 6.5 Creedmoor. We load probably, I don't know, seven or eight different projectiles in our 6.5 Creedmoor line, everything from... Uh, a 95 grain up to a 147. And I've laid down with a rifle and shot groups by shooting two of each of those. Uh-huh. It's almost as good as any one of them would have been by itself. So that, you know, and now that's it. That's it really short time of flights. Obviously, you know, you get into drag differences because those are totally different bullets. But that's just an extreme example to show you that the weight variation that we commonly see in match quality bullets of today is in my opinion not worth your your concern but it, it all goes back to the question of what is your time worth to you because what is the cost of sorting bullets by weight it's your time you might have to buy some instrumentation a scale or something if you don't have it but mainly the cost is your time so it's up to the individual to determine are they concerned enough about the weight being unmeasured and that being an unmeasured variable to offset the cost it would take them to weigh and sort the bullets don't know. I can't tell you one way is right or wrong, but I think the individual has to determine if the cost of them doing it is worth the value that they get out of it. And a lot of the value is probably psychological, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, I mean, that's to- right. There's no wrong answers, but I'm curious where you would see a one grain in a bullet effect ballistically be such that you could miss a target if everything else was done right. I guess we could calculate that, but but that's pretty far away. It's far away. Yeah, you're you're talking that 1.5 second time of flight and beyond, uh, sort of sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty far away. <laughs> pretty far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so your second question was was bullet length. Um, now the bullet length question really depends on the type of bullet that you're using. So if it's a boat tail hollow point design, um, whether that's Hornady's or Burgers or Sierras or Nosler, like doesn't matter whose name is on the box, a Bowtail hollow point is of similar design, meaning that when the bullet is made, it's manufactured very similarly, where the copper, uh, the copper jacket of the bullet is essentially drawn into like a water glass type of geometry you could think of it as. The lead core gets inserted on the inside, and then that top end of the water glass gets squished down into what we see as a finished ogive on a projectile. Well, that that copper jacket is going to flow differently as that thing is getting squished down, and so you'll see a lot more variance in a in a base to tip measurement or a bullet length measurement with a boat tail hollow point design than you would say a tipped bullet. You know, like we make a lot of tipped bullets, obviously, like you said, the A tip and an ELD match, an ELDX, and all those, you'll see much more consistent uh, bullet length because we deliberately cut the tip of the bullet off at a consistent location and then put a manufactured tip on top of it. And that's a more consistent way than just letting copper flow uh, through cold working processes. But do you notice a difference in precision and accuracy or or um, external ballistics playing a role yeah. in different length bullets of a similar type. Absolutely. You certainly can. Um, 
So the, the concept of drag variability uh, is starting to be discussed a little bit in the, in the shooting communities and stuff. That can certainly be a source of that. Um, and drag variability will result in those kind of higher low flyers that you see generally at like those one second time of flights and beyond. You know, everything's just hammering right in the middle and then one kind of goes high randomly and you can't associate it to anything and then they just go right back to being in the middle. That, that would be a description of usually an observation of drag variability. But those bullet length variances will affect the drag of the bullet. Um, the other thing that they can affect is the jump to the rifling. Uh, you know, if you're seeding all of your bullets to a known cartridge overall length, not a base to ogive measurement, um, then let's say you switch bullet lots or you get into something different where it is different than the other stuff you were shooting, you will effectively change the contact point or the amount of distance the bullet has to move uh, before it engages the rifling. And that could possibly have some effects, but it, it's hard. You would have to determine in your specific circumstance. Gotcha. But if you had to do one of two things, sort the weight of the bullet or so, sort the overall length of the bullet, you think that inside of one second, you could benefit more from the length than the weight. That, that's what Correct. I'm hearing. Okay. Yes, I would agree. And then, and then if you're measuring the ogive length, is that fairly consistent Based to ogive on all bullets, regardless of the length, it it should be yeah, and specifically within a lot, it should be very very consistent. But lot to lot to lot, you will see more consistency with a with a tipped bullet generally than you will a a boat tail hollow point, just because of the differences. Now now, based to ogive will be more consistent lot to lot than bullet length will be for sure. Gotcha. So if you're going to take one measurement of the three, that might. That would be the one to do versus typically yeah, if you well, wanted to be consistent. Yeah, kind of. Um, so, so base to ogive is going to give you a consistency metric as far as your bullets jump to the rifling. Mm -hmm. Bullet length might give you more of an indication of differences in drag of the bullets. Interesting. Um, I want to talk about drag variability because I just haven't heard of that, but I don't want to get bogged down on anything yet because this is our first our first kind of uh, chat on this stuff. I want to ask you about, I got lost here for a sec. Um, God, I'm fascinated with that. Um, uh, 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 oh, yeah. So um, you got these heavy, so in mountain, in the mountain shooting stuff, you see a trend of people wanting really heavy, six, five rounds that are going a little bit slower to fight mm -hmm. the wind. But then you've got this population of people that are going lighter bullets, like screaming fast. Mm -hmm. And there, when you put them into a calculator, people are, are arguing like, well, look at my calculator. It's got the same wind drift as this, or, or, or look at the recoil, the time of flight, or I could see trace better on a slower bullet, or I can, yeah. I can do this, but the faster bullet and, 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 but from a ballistician perspective, Tell me the pros and cons of let's just say a super heavy six five, yep, going slower, but having the same wind drift as a screaming fast two two three, you know, at mm -hmm. like thirty two hundred feet per second or whatever the speed limit is. Because because I see some of these, um, you know, one forty plus one fifty grain six fives going. 2,700 feet per second, and then I see the 88 grain 223s going 3,150. Yeah. And and at a thousand yards, let's say that the elevation or not elevation, but the wind is consistent. How would you approach trying to solve a problem by comparing both ends of the spectrum of how people are experimenting without other other um, data? Yeah, great question, because this happens all the time. I run into it as well. Um, so consistency is always king. Uh, a lot of times we look at these performance metrics like maybe a BC or a velocity or how much wind deflection these things have, and then we, we set sail with that information only. But consistency will always win. So if the 6.5 if the gives you more consistency in, in say muzzle velocity standard deviations or smaller group sizes those metrics always win 
but that's not necessarily what we're talking about here, right? Because we're talking about a guy who's just going to run some numbers and compare two things. Like, what else is there for him to consider? Well, right. with with the six five being a little bit slower, especially at these competitive matches we're at, and I would argue hunting as well, the ability to spot your own shot is is invaluable in that I don't know that you can put a value on it because regardless if you hit or you miss, if you don't know where you hit or missed, you don't have the ability to improve after that shot. But if you have the ability to witness it, even if you hit the target, but maybe you hit just inside the edge, the chances are if you send another shot with that same hold, you might miss on this one just due to natural dispersion. But if you see that you just snuck that one in right on the edge and you can now make a correction back to center, you have much higher chances of hitting that target the second time. So it, it's hard to place a value on being able to observe the bullet's impact, but that's a huge consideration when you talk about the heavy, slow versus lightweight, fast argument is, yeah, the, the lighter weight bullet going faster may have less recoil, but at the practical distances you're shooting, are the time of flights so short that even though the recoil is less, you still can't get back on the gun to see where you hit? If that's the case, I would avoid that. I would choose something that has a little bit more recoil, but is going slow enough that I can get back on the gun and see that miss. And I, I test this myself. I was actually, I, I drew my elk tag in, in Colorado to hunt where I grew up this year. And I, I took the, the rifle out and was just doing a little bit of, you know, shooting. I got a month and a half out from the hunt, um, just doing a little messing around with the rifle. And one of my goals was to see at what at what distance am I able to spot my own impacts, you know, standing off a tripod, kneeling off a tripod prone to try to establish a baseline of what to expect with that system. Um, so, yeah, I I would I would rarely leave the ability to see an impact in pursuit of some raw performance metric somewhere. Mm -hmm. That's a good answer. It, it, it made me think of another thing that I've heard, but, but haven't really followed up on. I've heard people describe, especially when it, around hunting season, you know, what, what are you going to take hunting? And somebody says, well, I'm going to take a seven mil because the BC's optimized for the caliber. Mm. And, and that kind of makes my head want to explode because <laughs> it seems to me like, wait a minute, like you got a bullet and it's a weight and it's a, you know, like, do you, do you, how do you understand that? Because I, to me, it doesn't, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. How do you optimize a BC for a caliber? Or are they talking about like a, some kind of metric between speed and weight? It, it doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense yeah. to you? No. <laughs> um, so I would I would say, you know, there there's bullets that are optimized for every caliber aerodynamically. That, that you can look at the A-tip line that way. You know, um, the constraints that you have to design within are really the questions that need to be asked. What is the twist rate of the uh, of the cartridge that this bullet is designed to be used within? Because the twist rate is going to limit you more on the aerodynamic design of the bullet than really anything else because the aerodynamics come from the shape. And so you can only take the shape so far within a given twist rate before the thing is gyroscopically unstable and you won't hit anything anyway. So that the, the, the limitations there lie more in what is the bullet being designed to be used in? Is it a seven mag or is it a seven PRC? Because those things have two totally different twist rates. You're gonna max out at around a 162 class bullet with a seven mag where the 7 PRC, you can run up to a 190 grain bullet. They're both a 7 millimeter. Why does one allow for so much more, you know, efficiently aerodynamically designed projectiles? It's because of the twist rate and, and a couple other things, the dimension of the cartridge, the dimension of the chamber and stuff like that. But but in general, that, that statement of the 7 millimeter has some, like, sweet spot from bullet designers and gets the most efficiently designed bullets. No, that, that's not true. Is there a speed that optimizes, is there is there a way to calculate kind of an optimal speed for a bullet and bullet weight? And I guess what I mean by that um, is when a lot of people like 308s, mm -hmm. but they're not competitive in the ranges that 6.5s and 6 millimeters are. And so you don't see 308s being used in competition except for the classes like TAC class. Yeah. Or, but, but, 
but yet people that work with rifles are still often working with 308s. If you could get the speed of the bullet higher ballistically, you've got a little bit more performance out of that round, but are is it the same idea as that you're trying to get a speed to optimize the twist rate? Um, well, the speed the speed is mainly a function of the cartridge. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think the limitations that you see there, like why are people still using 308s when 6.5 and 6s exist? You know, and and the the performance differences are are like undeniably obvious, right? Like the first time, most of us probably transitioned through a 308 at one point if we didn't start with it, and then probably went to a 6.5 variant after that. At least in the past two decades, that's a common story, right? Um, yeah. and, and and when you do that, it's like, oh, wow, I've I've been living a lie with this 308, you know? <laughs> when you understand how, how much you can screw up and still be successful on target with the advantages of a 6.5 or a 6. So why are guys still using 308s? Um, a lot of it, when you when you said you know guys that use it for work, if it's law enforcement, military, they're you know they're just using what they have available to them, and and that's a bigger question of procurement and and the reasons why they're selecting what they're selecting. You're seeing that tune change both in Department of Defense and in law enforcement. You're seeing big shifts away from those legacy cartridges to higher performance cartridges, and I I think that just comes with the changes in generations that occur. You know the 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 old police chief that you know all he ever used was a 308 so there's nothing else needed even if it's maybe better or more effective for the guys you know those guys are retiring and you have new blood coming in that will consider new things so you see that happening um but the 308 is also so common think about how many firearms have been chambered in 308 since it was released you know i mean it's got to be millions they're they're everywhere Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that's some of it too. That's that's what you have, so that's what you use. And again, there's nothing wrong with the 308, but you stack it up aerodynamically with the other stuff that's more modern, and and it it cannot keep up as easily. Right. Okay. I'm gonna because I don't want to because I want to get you back and keep talking. I want to go back because one trend of this that was unexpected, but it seems to have come into every conversation is time of flight. Uh huh. And. Instead of thinking distance, think time of flight. Instead of like wrapping my head around some of this stuff, it's going to take a little bit. But I want to, I'm imagining a time of flight curve. You know, we, we see like the, you know, you see the, the generic printouts of the time of flight curves of bullets. Yeah. Um, at what time of flight on average do you see that curve start to drop off faster than average? Probably around three quarter to one. You know that that curve is pretty pretty flat out to about a half a second, and then when you start creeping up on you know point seven five or three quarter, you're starting to see some curvature. And then as that approaches one and goes beyond it, it that curvature just gets more and more exaggerated. Gotcha. Are you familiar with speed drop? Yes. So you know, just I mean, people use different variations of it, but I imagine that speed drop is just matching up that curvature to a consistent, predictable pattern over distance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is is the far end of that speed drop around the one, or I guess we could just look at it, it's, but but it's probably a touch inside of that, yeah, where you start to see your your errors creeping up again. You know, you kind of have that window for speed drop to work, and and inside of that window, it's kind of problematic. There's some errors, right? And then outside of its window, it's generally what like you know, say two to seven hundred or three to eight hundred is kind of the the range at which it's effective. Um, right. And you go outside yeah, of those yeah, tail like ends. four to yeah four to seven something yeah, like that because yeah. I think Depending three on, most guns. 300 yards is about a mil. Exactly. And then 400 yards is not quite, you know, it's 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 like half a mil more or 0.6. Yes, one and a half. But 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 four depends on the caliber cuz um like 308s, you know, 4 to 4 to 7, it's about a mil per 100 yards and then 65s it's 4 to 8 and then right. it depends on how fast that is. But in that kind of what we call the the medium, like we got close, middle, far, that yeah. middle range, you know, they tend to line up for those calibers. But but I'm curious in terms of time of flight, I'm sure that's what it's reflecting. But um, mm-hmm. I like those practical patterns. Not yeah. that you're always going to find a use for that, but 
when there are tricks to get around something like the gravity ballistics for doping and speed drop for elevation. If you know a quick fix for the field, sometimes that will work where you don't have all the devices to actually get laser precise information. But I'm curious about the, um, the time of flight curve where you really see that curve start to drop off. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's where, um, all of that signal to noise ratio starts to get muddy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm saying like, so I'm going to put a hard stop on one second Mm -hmm. because past that, there are other things to account for. If you made a list of, priorities based on distance which we could we could interpret that maybe as ty- priorities in time of flight yeah what do you think are the thresholds and the priorities that somebody should consider and where they layer those in so the top priority is the raw dispersion of that firearm and ammunition combination mhm and that is applicable immediately, right? You can you can establish that at 100 yards, and it's valid at 100. It continues to be valid beyond that. You never get to leave it behind. Um, next would be velocity and drag variation, and those are going to start to become meaningful at around that half second time of flight range. Mm-hmm. Wind wind is obviously all at all ranges um but it's hard to it's hard to prior give wind a high priority in this list because it's always unknown you can know the dispersion of your rifle you can measure that you can know the velocity and the velocity variability of your ammunition firearm because you can measure that and drag variability that one's not as measurable by you know the average shooter out there um but but wind is obviously always a concern and the variability of the wind. But mm-hmm. that's where I would prioritize those things. And and that's uh, that's essentially the list I go through when I'm beginning to work with a rifle and understand its capabilities as I first define its dispersion. G- generally, you can do multiple at once, right? You can lay down at 100 and, and define the dispersion capabilities of the rifle at the same time that you're gathering the velocity data on the rifle. You do both of those at once. Um, but all those things become stepping stones in that they're additive. So that raw dispersion of the rifle, when you get past a half second time of flight and you have a given amount of velocity variation, that's only additive on top of that. It can't make it any smaller. It takes whatever pattern that rifle had and it makes it bigger. And then drag variability makes that bigger. And then wind variability makes that bigger. And when you add all of those things up, you get the full capability picture of like your hit probabilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. I do these little videos with like what ends up people are like, Hey, that looks like an eyeball of system shooter, external ballistics, wind. Uh-huh. Um, Cause I measure shooters that way with, with uh rifle craft and, and the craft challenge and stuff. But, but it, it's like, man, adding in like, well, you, you know, if, if you're shooting four inches, we don't need to worry about distance yet. Let's bring yes. your sh- shooting. In. Um, <laughs> That's right. Let's and, fix and the then, Right. And so, but I want to learn wind. Like, yeah, I know, but man, right now you're shooting what would equate to plus or minus 20 mile an hour wind. Uh, you're with right, no wind. <laughs> with no wind. So, so let's bring it down so that when you miss it at distance, we know you missed because of wind, not because of you. And scaling yeah. those things out, I think about that systematically. But but somebody like you who has access to a lab where you can do pressure, velocity, accuracy, propellants, then 300 meters, then distance with a Doppler, it's nice to hear how that data kind of line, lines up. Well, maybe next time we chat, uh, we can look at some of the results from your Doppler studies between accuracy and distance and how the... Um, I use a Fordoff Kestrel, mm-hmm. and I, I have uh, applied ballistics Kestrel. I have two Fordoff Kestrels, and you know when everything's right, everything lines up really well. But I, w- I want to get into um, angles mm-hmm. next time, and okay. and um, and then some of the um, 
differences between you know reality and predicted and 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 why people are approaching it from different angles because there's um you know I, I like Ryan Ryan Kleckner he and I chat a lot and you know he says well look if I know the target is diamond and I dial to diamond I know I'm going to hit the diamond you know and he's just to say like reality's reality and we're trying to figure out ways to explain it but the but the truth is it's going to do what it's going to do in terms of drop and so on and so forth sure. um sometimes you know, the formulas are right they're created to represent things that we're seeing and it can be so overwhelming that we forget that that it's just doing what it's going to do and we're trying to figure that out but it it's still going to do what it's going to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, bridging that gap between explaining it well or just doing it. Right. Um, you know, we ideally we kind of want to do both, but most people want to be able to just do it. But the only yeah. way for them to figure that out is trying to figure out what's being said about something. And that's where everything goes wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trying to, trying to bridge those gaps between like reality versus formulas. I have that down here, but, but, you know, we're going to, I just don't want to, I just don't want to go too long. Uh, I also want to talk about 17 HMR next time. Um, because I think that's a freaking awesome little speedy zippy thing. And yeah, that's why it may or may not be more, more, um, popular. I, I guess, it, but anyway, um, no, man, I, I really appreciate, uh, you taking the time to come on and, I look forward to hopefully convincing you to come back on and, and finish this. I've got two pages of questions and we didn't oh, oh, really boy. get through one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, I, but I, I, really I think this is really cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough. Is there anything that you want to say, um, you know, for yourself or Hornady that, that you want the listeners to know about right away? Like any cool things coming out, um, cool projects. Yeah. To go so look at. So I don't know when this will go live. Um, we're kind of here in like early September, uh, second week of September, I guess. Um, so we go we go live with our new products uh, January 25th, I believe. Or sorry, yeah, sorry, October 25th. I had the 25 part right. Um, so here in like a month and a half, um, we'll go live with those. And we definitely have some cool new stuff that we'll be coming out with that we've been working on. Um, I think people will be pretty happy with it. I'm excited about it. So uh, I hope that equates to other people. Um, but man, I think from Hornady's perspective, we just appreciate, you know, the shooters out there and, and you're obviously, you know, putting out information for shooters. So we appreciate that. And, and just engaging in that part of our culture. Um, that's where we, we have our business and how we feed our families, but we also love it, you know, same way you do and have this show and, and all the people that listen to it are, we're all the same on that level. You know, we just can't get enough of it and we want to know more and do better. And, and, uh, and that's awesome. So let's just keep it up. <laughs>